This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines and critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Each week on this podcast, we talk about events and places all over the world, because often what happens elsewhere matters here, too. But today we're going to talk about a region much closer to home, the American Midwest, because what happens here also matters for the rest of the United States and indeed for the rest of the world. The Midwest encompasses all or part of 12 U.S. states and is home to more than 70 million people. Its political importance in 2020 is clear from the caucuses and primaries going on right now to the big electoral votes up for grabs in November in Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. But at the same time, the Midwest is often written off as an economic has-been, a rust belt, a cultural and economic backwater increasingly left behind by much more dynamic coasts. As we'll learn today, the truth is a different and more complicated story. Joining me to discuss this is Shane D. Race, who is the national news reporter for The Wall Street Journal covering the American heartland. She focuses on the economy and economic development. Welcome, Shane D. Thanks so much for having me. And also for this conversation, we have John Austin, who is a non-resident senior fellow on the Global Midwest at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. He's also director of the Michigan Economic Center and a non-resident fellow with the Brookings Institution. Welcome, John. Great to have you on Deep Dish as well. Hi, Brian. Hi, Sandy. Hi. John, I want to start with you because you recently published a report with the council which makes this case about the, the way we think about the region and the need to think about it in more complex ways in a great deal of detail. Um, the report is titled A Vital Midwest, The Path to a New Prosperity. It's available at the council website, and of course I'd encourage our listeners to read it. But briefly, John, one of the arguments you make is this conception of the Midwest is just a dying rust belt is wrong. You talk about there actually being two Midwests. What do you mean and what do you see going on here? Yeah, this uh, this region that we call home, you know, was certainly the the center of the agro-industrial uh, uh, might of America during the 20th century. But as most people are familiar, you know, so many of the great industries, the manufacturing industries, durable goods, steel, autos, you know, went through tremendous restructuring and lost a lot of jobs as foreign competition opened up. And uh, but the the region has been going on for some time and a kind of economic uh, restructuring and transformation with a, a move for uh, many of the communities in the region have you know, really turned an economic corner, uh, have become more diverse, uh, more tech heavy, uh, and are sort of shedding their factory town roots. But particularly since these are the swing states and every four years, but in 2016, our states were so central in Wisconsin, Michigan, to the election of President Trump, it kind of galvanized or brought new attention from the nation and the world. What is going on in this region? What is the uh, the condition of people? Are they are they hollowed out industrial towns and rural hinterlands where people are kind of anxious and somewhat angry and looking for a uh, a better future? And is that the picture of the region? And as as we put out in this report. There are two Midwests. So many of the major metros from Minneapolis in the west to uh, Pittsburgh in the east have really become diverse economic hothouses. All these university towns, uh, which were blessed with more of the great research universities uh, from Iowa City to Madison to Ann Arbor, where I am, are just uh, killing it in a global tech knowledge economy. And interestingly, so many of the old factory towns that did lose their anchors many of them have turned a corner and have found a, a path forward. And that's 
while others have not, uh, that's part of the story of this report is that there are success paths for some of the older industrial cities uh, that lost their anchors. And when folks do, they find new economic opportunity. And I think they're more optimistic and outward oriented. And that's uh, an effort or a, a reality that we're eager to help accelerate in this region. So terrific. And I want to unpack that as the conversation uh, continues. Um, Shane, do you're in the region. Uh, what do you see going on here? What do you see as the as the positive stories that are, are of the kinds of things that John indicated are also happening here? I definitely think John is right. We have actually, John and I have had many of these conversations uh, about this issue. Um, and so, you know, there are cities that have seen success, especially when it comes to building up a tech center, which is just absolutely essential in today's economy. Pittsburgh is one that I think of, Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis. Um, there were like a handful of cities that were on Amazon's shortlist for where it was going to build its second headquarters. And that kind of tells you a lot of what you need to know. But the fact that they didn't end up going anywhere in the Midwest also kind of tells you what you need to know, which is that those cities are not, they're not really where their coastal peers are. So yes, there has been um, some success and a tremendous amount of headway has been made, um, but they still really don't compare to, you know, the San Francisco, Silicon Valley, Seattle, New York, Boston, um, they're just not on the same level. And that poses all sorts of challenges for them in terms of, you know, really being a part of the economy of the future. Um, and then I would also just say that, you know, one of the biggest struggles for these places, it's not just about the industry itself, because, you know, some of them, and John can talk about this even more than I can, you know, there are places that sort of have taken the history that they have, like, you know, they had maybe traditional manufacturing and they've turned to advanced manufacturing or they had a robust healthcare industry and they're moving into, you know, R&D and um, really trying to use what they had to catapult themselves into the future. But um, there are still a lot of places in the Midwest that are really struggling to hold on to people. And I think the story of the Midwest is also very largely about, you know, pretty significant either population loss or just totally stagnant population growth, especially when you compare the Midwest to other parts of the country, the South, which just seems to be booming, you know, the Western part of the United States. And so um, there, I would like make two points. There's been success, but that success still does not come close to where their peers are. Pittsburgh is still not New York. It's not San Francisco. Um, and also, they have this ongoing challenge, which is that they just don't have growth. People are not coming, moving there in robust numbers. And the only way to kind of attract more industry and more companies is by saying we have the labor force to fill these jobs. And, and so I think that's really critical to understanding kind of this situation, this sort of two Midwest. And they have, you know, some headwinds and they've got some tailwinds. Terrific. I want to unpack a little bit of, uh, of, of that. And I want to bring you in, John, because one of the things that so struck me in, in your report was the density of really high quality universities. And when it comes just to training computer scientists, the number of people, the proportion of people that are trained in the in the Midwest and then as uh, as we've just heard also you know leave the region for jobs elsewhere can you talk a little bit about what that resource is for the region and 
how we can take better advantage of it? Uh, yeah, and as, as, as Shandy was saying, within the region, the Midwest, just as within the country, you're seeing this kind of divergence, uh, which a lot of people are concerned about, where the kind of economic hothouses are getting hotter and uh, you know, economic activity and, and people and talent are kind of congregating to uh, in the nation, you know, the coastal regions, but in our, our region, the, the, the major metros, the economic hothouses, the university towns that we have. Uh, are are the centers of economic activity. It's almost sort of a tautological, you know, in a knowledge economy where people are working with their brains and inventing new ideas and technologies and then creating new businesses and products and services. Where does that happen? It happens in and around research universities working with the private sector and entrepreneurs and, and uh, developing new startups and businesses in the sectors that are growing, like clean energy and medical and IT and all the things that are growing fast around the world. And you, we are blessed in the region with 20-plus uh, of the uh, top 200 global research universities on the planet that are, that's more than the West Coast has, it's more than the East Coast. You know, you think about why Silicon Valley exists or why Boston exists as an economic hothouse. It's driven by the great research universities that percolated all sorts of bio and tech and new technologies and then the entrepreneurial hothouses that uh, grow around that. Uh, now, we have amazing innovation and talent generation coming out of our university towns, and they are growing and thriving and attracting more people. But uh, one of the things we need to do is, is translate more of that innovation into new uh, startups and businesses locally. Uh, too often, uh, the new idea or new technology that comes out of one of our universities is developed uh, on the coast where the venture capital money uh, is. And we are, for example, proposing in our report uh, let's let's take all this wealth we have in our institutional investors and pension funds, and let's subsidize our own ecosystem of venture capital uh, and innovation funds in our states and our regions, so that we can translate more of the new businesses that are and innovations that come out of our great universities into big startups that then mint millionaires and create new startups and get that virtuous flywheel going. Which is one of the both opportunities and challenges, because uh, when it does happen, it creates a new story about our region, that it's uh, not the old economy, the industries of yesterday. It's the things that are coming, like tech, uh, like fintech innovation, like medical technologies. We have the horsepower to do it in the region. We need to apply more capital and brain power to, to turn it into good jobs, high-paying jobs in growing sectors locally. Yeah, I think that um, something that John touched on um, about sort of this idea that there's a, more of a concentration of um, talent in these major economic hotspots, you know, I think that Brookings actually came out with a report not so long ago, a few weeks ago, that 90% of all um, innovation tech talent is concentrated in five cities, you know, the ones that you'd expect, New York, Seattle, San Jose, uh, or actually New York wasn't one, Boston. Um, and so I think that um, the the key there is sort of figuring out how to fight against this trend of concentration. Like, why is this, I think it's what economists call agglomeration, why are people sort of, you know, concentrating in these 
cities, um, and there's all sorts of theories, you know, one is that it's easier for employers to find employees, it's easier for ideas to spread, there's also a social component, you know, people want to be with similar people, um, and the, when I go and visit places in the Midwest, and I often go to rural areas, or even to, like, very small cities, and the code that they're trying to crack is, like, what, how do we figure out how to create an environment where people will want to stay and live, and so as John points out, you know, you have all this talent that's right there because they're in the university. So they're coming to the Midwest. They're either from the Midwest or they're coming to the Midwest to study and then they're leaving. And, you know, I also find when I go to a lot of these college towns that the goals of the town is to figure out how do we keep people here? How do we convince them that they can get a good job here and that they can have a good, you know, quality of life and that they won't need to take, um, they won't need cars. I mean, there's just so many different things. They want, you know, walkable cities. I, there's all these different components to what makes a place attractive. And right now it feels like for a lot of people, the Midwest doesn't have as many options or maybe not the most attractive options, um, even though, you know, again, there are these, you know, fantastic places. Um, it's, it's still, it's still like not, you know, on the list of hottest cities in the U.S. Yeah. And John, let me bring you in because one of the things that, that struck me in the, in the report is that there are some places who have made progress in this area. As we look at, at those relative success stories, um, are there commonalities? What can we learn from the places that have uh, been successful in trying to, to, to build up that talent base, become attractive places for talented people to, to, to live and get that kind of investment needed to be successful? Yeah, and, the, and those are the most interesting places because uh, if you don't have a major research university, you aren't a major metro, uh, and you had some big anchor employers that perhaps closed up shop or gone – uh, if if you don't find a path and replace those jobs and and those incomes, you know your community is uh, among and we have many of those communities um, kind of withering and dying, and the young people are leaving, and uh, that's the those are the places where folks are most uh, anxious and they're nostalgic uh, about let's bring back the days of yore when this was a thriving town, uh, and they're eager to blame whomever immigrants, uh, and so but. The communities, and we've got a number of them that did lose their anchors. And part of the the report, we map out what are the different avenues by which some of these smaller, medium-sized, older industrial cities that maybe don't have a major research university aren't in the orbit of Chicago land or Minneapolis or Columbus because they're going to do fine. Uh, and so some of them, the company town employer, like stayed on the cutting edge of innovation. Uh, Columbus, Indiana, where Cummings Engine is on the forefront of global, you know, clean, big engine diesel technology, and, and they stay vibrant as a company town. Others um, are have a physical or historical. They're on a location like a Great Lakes Shore. Think of Marquette. Think of Duluth. Think of all the communities that rim the Great Lakes. We feature Ashtabula, northeast of Ohio. It's an old manufacturing city, but it's on a Great Lake. So when you clean up the waterfront and you uh, make a really robust quality of life where you can enjoy that location, it's a place people choose to live, work, and run their business because it's such a great lifestyle. Um, but the, the ones that are truly interesting are the ones that are landlocked, aren't like on a natural asset like a great lake that's spectacular and people want to live there no matter what. Um, Kalamazoo, Michigan is one of my favorites. 
because it's such a neat story. Here you have an older industrial city. It was paper mills that totally polluted the river at 100,000 people. Then it was the uh, anchors were Upjohn and uh, Upjohn Company for years, 40, 50,000 people in a pharmaceutical giant. Uh, Pfizer bought them and they closed up, empty, uh, 15 years ago. What did they do in Kalamazoo? Because they were losing people. They were losing middle-class families. They did three things. They kept some of the, they had smart leadership that ran a plan. And they kept some of the bioscience talent that spilled out of Upjohn and Pfizer, helped them start new biotech firms. They redid their downtown for livable, walkable. Uh, Bell's Brewery was subsidized by the public dollars to create a brew pub and a nice downtown. But then most fundamentally, they marked themselves the community that cares about talent building and higher education. They guaranteed if you go to Kalamazoo Public Schools, you will have free higher education paid for anywhere in Michigan. And it worked, meaning it brought middle-class families back to Kalamazoo. It brought businesses back who appreciated a community that was committed to higher education as their, as their signature. And so you have a thriving middle-sized city again uh, that is also a place where residents are optimistic and looking forward. And so these different success paths, working with whatever assets you've got to leverage, in the Midwest, there are uh, paths available, but uh, you need to organize locally and, and work with what you got and make a plan. And when you do, uh, it is possible to find new economic success, even in this global, changed, urbanized knowledge economy for many smaller and medium-sized cities and rural areas that have a, a signature profile that makes them an attractive place for people to live, work, play, and do their business. And we've got a lot of those communities. So we've been talking a lot about um, high-skilled uh, workers, highly educated workers. Uh, in this region, we also have a uh, workforce that hasn't benefited from that kind of level of, of education. What do we need to do uh, about the regional workforce? Are they part of this story? And if so, are there things that need to be done in order to incorporate them into, the, into this economic story of pathways of potential success? Yeah, there, there's fascinating legacies of the history of development in this era, I mean, in this region, uh, including... Uh, the fact that, yes, we have amazing talent generation and we educate more people with higher education degrees of any region in the country or the world. But we also have a legacy of many, many people came here to get a good job that didn't require higher education. Uh, and workers out already in the labor market, we have more of these adult workers who just have a high school degree uh, in our states than, than elsewhere in the nation. Those workers are the ones who are either have been automated or their job's been taken by a robot already, or it's going to happen soon as incredible change is happening to the workplace. So it is imperative and that we deliver a higher education, a post-secondary credential or degree or certificate for those adult workers already out there. Uh, so that they can get a good job, which there are good jobs, but you need a higher education post-secondary uh, training or credential. You, you're going to be programming the robot, not, uh, you know, stamping, you know, turning a screwdriver in today's factory. So we can do that. We're proposing a GI Bill for workers uh, where we guarantee uh, to help pay for 
a post-secondary credential for adults who are already out there. We know it can work. We did a version of it in Michigan. Hundreds of thousands of people can come back, get the credential they need to get a good-paying job, which is what our workers want. They don't want a handout. They don't want a guaranteed minimum wage. They want the dignity of work, and we can do it as a country. It's one of the reasons we're focusing attention in this report on uh, this region. We got people running for president. It's an election year. Let's really deliver the things that would be most helpful to support the economic success of people in this region. I think that um, there are a lot of places in the Midwest that have really internalized what John just said, that this move from, you know, old school manufacturing to advanced manufacturing requires a different mindset in terms of education. It's not just that you can have a high school diploma and go straight to the manufacturing floor. You need some sort of certification. You need some sort of training. You need to know how to program the robot that's going to do a lot of the stuff that people once did. Um, And so there are tons of opportunities, but it just requires some fine tuning. And I think that there are places in the Midwest that have totally internalized this and have really, you know, galvanized themselves and, I mean, the state and the city and the community colleges and even the high schools. I mean, a lot of high schools are now offering essentially training classes that are like, you know, you can come, you can walk out and you can have a certificate to go work in the factory down the street. But unfortunately, there are a lot of places that also are not doing that. And I've, you know, visited both. And, you know, the, the, question is really going to be for the places that kind of recognize what needs to be done and how young this intervention needs to be. I mean, it really, like there are places I've seen where they start as early as like fourth, fifth grade teaching kids manufacturing skills, trying to explain to kids that, you know, four-year college is great, but, you know, you don't have to take that route. If you think you're not going to go to college, there are other opportunities for you. You can get certification. You can get some sort of training so that you can have a decent paying job, but you need something. And, um, and, you know, there are places that haven't quite recognized that yet. And so that's also probably going to be part of this tale of the two Midwests is the places that are going to be more proactive about this and explaining what the opportunities of the future are and, you know, places that are going to be less proactive. Sandy, we profile in the report one of those places, and there are many in the region that have marked themselves uh, as their strategy, let's be the place that delivers the skills. Georgetown, Kentucky is a, you know, a community uh, in northern Kentucky that has organized around, we're going to make sure our employers or any employers that want to come here have the most highly trained workers, and they're doing it, and it's working, meaning they've got a growing uh, economy, growing jobs. It's one way to find success in a changed world. And it's also, you know, the employers, I mean, one thing we haven't really talked about is the low unemployment rate nationally. And in some of these states in the Midwest, um, the unemployment rate is even lower than the national unemployment rate, in part because, you know, there aren't as many people. Um, But, you know, I think that the smart places are figuring out, like, we have populations that maybe aren't in the labor force that we could bring into the labor force. They're going and, you know, now all of a sudden there are opportunities for, you know, uh, people coming out of prison. Um, There are opportunities for people with developmental disabilities. There are opportunities for immigrants and, you know, the smart companies and the smart um, states and counties and cities are figuring out how to, you know, spread this opportunity farther down the chain. Um, And then, you know, sadly, you have places that 
for whatever reason, can't quite change their culture to really um, spread that opportunity um, to all sectors of society. And so it really has to be a very thought-out, concerted effort, because if you just kind of expect this change to benefit you, this kind of, you know, systemic change in how our economy is set up on the manufacturing side, if you just expect that to happen and you don't have to do anything, your workforce is going to be left behind. So it really does require action. So one of the things that strikes me in the conversation um, to this point is we spend a lot of time identifying what local communities are doing, partnerships between uh, local governments and business, what states have been doing to create um, you know, the kinds of conditions in which uh, can support the, the, the success of uh, communities in the region. Um, I want to turn our attention to the federal level for a little bit, because as, as we've talked about, this is an election year. And one of the things that was clearly identified through the 2016 election is there are a lot of people hurting uh, in this region. And the region became much higher profile in terms of a priority, um, at least a rhetorical priority, for how to create new opportunities in this region. To what extent is the federal government involved and what role should it be playing in uh, supporting and advancing these kinds of transformations? Well, Brian, in the, in the vital Midwest, we lay out sort of the blueprint for what locals can and are doing, what the governors can do to accelerate economic growth, and really what the federal government could do that's most helpful. And it's a range of things that are particularly attentive to both the opportunities the region has that are unique and the challenges the region has. You know, on the opportunity side, yeah, we should f fund and fuel the research and innovation engines that are our universities because we will naturally win that resource and we will grow new innovation hothouse and new technologies and jobs in the Midwest. We should open markets and knock down barriers to trade. Our region uh, wins in global trade, but we need to make sure that uh, we have readjustment assistance that's meaningful, retraining assistance for adult workers who are dislocated from trade. With that, Midwestern voters support free and open trade. We should be uh, having a serious federal infrastructure uh, investment. We have the most battered, aging, expensive to repair infrastructure in the Midwest. 41% of the nation's uh, polluted brownfields that need cleaning up. Old roads, highways, sewer systems that are vividly fallen apart. So if we had any serious federal infrastructure investment, it would lift the Midwest and lift our economy and put people to work disproportionately here. Uh, and Per what Shandy was saying about the nation's focus on regions that are left behind, uh, which we have to stitch more people into today's economy, or they are going to be frustrated, angry, uh, and we can do it. So we need a federal uh, initiative to focus on communities that are going through transition, that are in the move from the old economy to the new. And if we package economic development and business support services and job training and infrastructure investment in those communities that are on their way still, that haven't turned the corner, the ones that have turned a corner are going to do fine. And we've got a lot of them in the Midwest. But we need to lift the people that uh, uh, haven't found purchase in a different economy. And we can do it. And it's one of the, the big priorities, I hope, for any and all administrations to come. 
So as we bring this conversation to a close, I, I want to ask um, you both to uh, reflect on as we're watching this development, and we will no doubt have, you know, this two Midwest story continue. Um, as we're looking on the positive side and the potential for even greater prosperity and a spread of that prosperity to communities that currently aren't experiencing it, what would you encourage us most to focus on in terms of understanding how this uh how this transition and development is either happening or isn't happening in, in this region. Well, Brian, uh, I, as you know, and I really appreciate the Chicago Council on Global Affairs leadership to kind of lay out uh, a, an understanding that's much more nuanced about the reality of the Midwest economy, that it isn't all a monolith of, of uh, aging older cities and rural hinterlands, uh, and to to have a positive, affirmative vision of how the Midwest economy and many places are succeeding and what's behind that. But also, I'm focused uh, on how do we accelerate and spread to more people and places uh, the economic opportunity that uh, we can uh, help nurture for them. Uh, as you know, uh, it's, it, our swing states are the font of kind of the the uh, much of the anger, resentment, uh, people uh, prey on that in my view, uh, meaning let's let's uh, bring back the good old days, the economy of the past. Let's uh, hole up and, and retreat from the world. You know, we had a round of nativism, protectionism, and pullback from the international order that uh, was uh, 100-plus years ago that led the Chicago Council on Global Affairs to uh, come into existence and say, no, we can't have an affirmative engagement with the world. We can understand the world. We can participate in the world. And this positive agenda for engagement with the world that we can thrive and succeed by embracing the forces of change, not running from them, you know, that's the most important feature of this understanding that we we can animate a positive, affirmative kind of economic uh, vision and agenda for this Midwest and pull more of uh, the, the people and places in the Midwest who aren't yet there into uh, a thriving, uh, globally connected economy uh, and, and people feeling good and, and secure and optimistic about their future, which will go a long way to healing kind of our political divides, which are, are, are causing such, such attention in our society. Yeah, I think John really hit the nail on the head in terms of sort of, you know, the core issue. And I think that, you know, one of the things we also have to recognize is a lot of the places that are having success um, are the bigger cities in the Midwest. And um, even though it's a revival for them, um, there's still a concentration of, you know, economic opportunity, talent, um, jobs in these larger cities. And so you still have this divide between, you know, the more rural areas or, you know, the smaller towns and cities throughout the Midwest and these bigger hubs. Um, and they tend to vote very, very differently. Uh, and so, you know, on some level, the divide is the Midwest and the rest of the country. And on some level, you can really even see that divide as you look state by state. Um, but I think that, you know, obviously spreading economic opportunity and figuring out how to um, overcome some of these challenges um, beyond just these, you know, cities that have had success is 
going to be key to healing a lot of the um, a lot of the tension that we have right now in the country. So Shane D. Race of the Wall Street Journal and John Austin of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and author of the recent report here at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs that's titled A Vital Midwest, The Pathway to New Prosperity that John wrote with Alexander Hitch here. I want to thank both of you for being on Deep Dish and helping us understand this region and what is possible for the future. Thanks so much to you both. Thank you. Thank you. And I also want to thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button in your podcast app so you can get each and every new episode as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like today's episode, please tap the share button and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.